The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation uh, chapter 15. We'll continue in our study in this incredible book, this book of unveiling, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the glorious one, whose glory we cannot see now. We have never seen him, as I just said in my prayer a moment ago in 1 Peter 1, whom you have not seen, you love him. And to also see the coming future as revealed in the pages of this book. In 1734 in June, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon in preparation for one of the greatest revivals, perhaps the greatest revival of religion that has ever been seen in the United States of America, the First Great Awakening. And he began the sermon with these words, It is the manner of God, before he bestows any signal mercy on the people, first to prepare them for it. Now the sermon that he was preaching from was Elijah and the prophets of Baal from 1 Kings. And that contest with the prophets of Baal and Mount Mount Carmel. And Edwards points out that God had been preparing the Jewish nation for years for that day. There was going to be an amazing revival of religion that day on Mount Carmel. To prepare the people for that, God had withheld dew and rain from the land for three and a half years. It had been a drought. He had brought severe famine as a result on the land. And he had raised up an amazing and bold prophet named Elijah who carefully set up this contest with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel at the instruction of God, as he says in his own prayer, that I've done everything at your word. So God had set this whole thing up, this contest with the prophets of Baal on the summit of Mount Carmel, whereby two altars would be set up, one for Baal and one for Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And a sacrificial animal would be laid on each one, and the prophets of Baal would call out to Baal, and Elijah would call out to the Lord, and the God that answered from heaven to earth by fire, he would be revealed as the true God. All of this was carefully orchestrated by God. Lined up, set up, prepared in advance. So that when the fire fell from heaven to earth, the people fell down on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. Now that was after the prophets of Baal had failed to do anything. There had been no answer. There had been no supernatural display of Baal's power. So Edward said, is the manner of God before he bestows any signal mercy on the people first to prepare them for it. Now, the book of Revelation, I think, makes a similar but opposite point. I would put it this way. It is the manner of God, before he pours out his just wrath on the wicked of the earth, first to prepare them for it. For God to set up in redemptive history a clear display of the evil And the wickedness of sin and rebellion against God. God has been doing that throughout redemptive history. And it's going to come to a culmination at the end of the world. And God has been preparing the world, the wicked of the world, for just 
such a time as that will be. It says in Proverbs 16:4, the Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. Proverbs 16:4, God works everything out for his own purposes, including the wicked for the day of disaster that is coming. God has a meticulous, careful plan for the wicked of the earth. Now, the Bible reveals that God is slow to anger. He's a very patient God, as he revealed to Moses. In Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. There will come a day when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans chapter 9 says that God bears with great patience the objects of his wrath. But the same verse says that they are prepared for destruction. There's a preparation. God has a meticulous plan. He's planned everything out very carefully how he's going to deal with the wicked of the earth. Now he has borne with great patience their wickedness in every generation. They have flouted his laws, flaunted their freedoms. They have abused the people of God. They have fanned their lusts into a flame. They have blasphemed his holy name. They have drank in the, the, the blessings of his sunlight and his rain without ever giving him thanks that he deserves. They have worshipped false gods of various types. And God is born with all of this with great patience. Now, I believe that all of this has been part of God's plan to give us what we wanted, what we asked for in the Garden of Eden, what our first father asked for on our behalf. What we wanted was an education. Remember the name of the tree. It is the knowledge of good and evil, that we would know good and evil, especially that we would get an education in evil. Well, we've had it now. We've had millennia of education in wickedness and evil. God has drawn it out as the book of Romans says, in order that the trespass might increase, that we might actually see in all of its dark colors just how evil and wicked sin is. And the wicked of the earth have worshipped various gods and goddesses and they've made idols and all of that's going to be consolidated in the end, this idolatry, into one final idol. The Antichrist, the man of sin who will come up out of the sea and the corresponding image made to focus the wicked, idolatrous hearts of the people of the earth on one man, a final false religion. And God, at the end of time, will pour out in a very wise, orderly way his judgments, little by little, but in an escalating and, and uh, increasing way. Revelation 9, 20 and 21 makes it plain, however, that the people, even with great judgments, being poured on them, from heaven to earth, they still will not repent. Revelation 9, 20 and 21, it says, The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So God will unleash a series of meticulously prepared judgments, one after the other, in, in a series that culminates in a final crescendo of judgment 
depicted in this book of Revelation. Now already in this book we've seen the seven seals broken open by Jesus. Resulting in a series of escalating judgments. And out of that seventh seal come seven trumpets. As we saw in Revelation 8 and 9. A series of, uh, of judgments on the ecology of the earth. In which a third of the plants of the earth and a third of the trees are burned up. And all of the green grass is burned up. And a third of the ocean turned to blood. And a third of the living creatures dying in the ocean. A third of the fresh water being poisoned. And a a demonic army unleashed on the inhabitants of the earth. Resulting in in the death of a third of mankind. Revelation 8 and 9. But even in that, in wrath, God is showing restraint. There's still a vast number of survivors. The ecology of the earth somewhat recovers. And life goes on for a short time longer. They have been warned one final time. Now all of these things were prepared, were planned in the mind of God before the world began. But now in Revelation the time will have come to unleash the final judgments, the final plagues. Like a terrifying doomsday machine. The most devastating doomsday machine there has ever been. The most devastating weapon that any humans have ever concocted is the atomic bomb. That was made in the Manhattan Project in World War II. The greatest physicists and mathematicians and engineers available worked together for three years at a total cost of over $2 billion, which was a huge amount of money in the mid-1940s. A workforce of 120,000 people. And they produced the weapon that unleashed the power of the atom. Science was precise and complex. The final effect was unspeakable. On July 16, 1945, the first nuclear blast in history was detonated at the Trinity site in New Mexico. The man in charge of the project, physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer, quoted Hindu poetry at that moment saying, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And then when it was dropped on Hiroshima, the atomic fireball over that city was devastating and awesome. Killing 90,000 people in one explosion. I've been to the Peace Museum there in Hiroshima. It's a sobering sight. But all of that is as nothing compared to what is going to be unleashed in the seven bowl judgments depicted in the next chapter, Revelation 16. Revelation 15 is a, a preface to that, it's an introduction. It's the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation, very brief. And it shows the careful preparation of the final judgment that's going to be poured out from heaven to earth for human sin. And how they flow from the character of God and how they flow from the heavenly temple of God. That's what Revelation 15 is about. So begin with verse 1, heavenly display of the seven angels. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues last because with them God's wrath is completed. So John begins with the words, I saw a sign in heaven, a great and marvelous sign in heaven. John is a seer, he's a visionary prophet, he's able to see into the heavenly realms, things that we cannot see. And he calls it a great and marvelous sign in the heavenly realms. Now the word sign to me, you know how it was used of Jesus' miracles, they were called signs and wonders. And there were signs of the coming kingdom, what the kingdom would be like, where there would be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. 
How Jesus in his mercy just seemed to banish illness and even death for a short time in the few years that he ministered. And he was able to to handle any disease and sickness. But these were just signs of a coming kingdom. Great and marvelous sign here, however, is the coming judgment. The judgment of God coming on the wicked of the human race. And in this brief chapter in the book of Revelation, we have an introduction to the seven bold judgments. Seven angels, seven plagues, last plagues. Now they're going to be revealed in detail in the next chapter, which God willing will begin looking at next week, Revelation 16. Now the seven angels will be God's chosen instruments to pour out these bowls of judgment on the surface of the earth. Now the number seven is well familiar to us by now, a number of perfection or completion. The seven seals giving way to the seven trumpets, giving way finally to the seven bowls. And these are the last plagues. Look at verse 1. Last, it says, because with them God's wrath is completed. Now the wrath of God is a perfect expression of his character. It's nothing that God would ever repent from. It's not something that he comes to himself later. It's not irrational or mindless. It flows from his character. It's a perfect expression of his justice and his passionate nature. Our God is a passionate being. He has emotions. He has feelings. We are created in the image of God and we have feelings too. Now our anger is unrighteous, usually unrighteous. It is possible for us to have righteous wrath and righteous indignation, but it's not often. Usually our anger, usually our wrath is based on pride or inconvenience, something like that. It's not based on anything righteous. But God's wrath flows from his own perfect character, from his justice and his passionate nature. It is his necessary reaction, emotional reaction, perfect emotional reaction to the existence of evil. And it also relates to his love for his people and his love for his creation. He hates anything that harms his people. He hates anything that would destroy his beautiful creation. And so these things are linked. His wrath is is linked together with his love. But these terrifying judgments, this wrath of God is not his home base. It is not his, his central nature. We see God is love. But we never see that God is wrathful. Though he is, that's not one of the things that's presented first and foremost about God. And so therefore Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 28, 21 speaks of God's judgments, his wrath being his strange work, his alien work. It's not his normal base, not his home base. That's why he puts it off so long. Someone noted recently in the book of Jonah, the only thing that gets harmed is the vine that grows up. There's all this threatened judgment, all this, but but it never happens. The pagan sailors survive. The whale survives. Jonah survives. The worm survives. Everything survives but the plant. Because God is deferring his judgment, deferring his wrath on Nineveh, deferring his judgment on Jonah. This alien work is strange work. But it's going to come. And with the pouring out of these seven bowls on planet earth, God's wrath will be finished for redemptive history. There will be no more such display or pouring out of the wrath of God in the new heavens and new earth. Of course, not counting the eternality of hell, which we discussed in Revelation 14. So, it's preparation. A vision preparing for the coming judgments of Revelation 16. And then in verses 2 through 4, we have the heavenly celebration by the victors. They're celebrating. Look at verses 2 through 4. I saw what looked like a sea of glass 
mixed with fire and standing beside the sea of those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. And they held harps given them by God. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. So we have this heavenly vision of triumphant worship. And the victors who have survived all of the attacks on their souls. They have survived the terrors of the reign of Antichrist, the beast from the sea. They are assembled there in heaven to worship and to celebrate. They're worshiping God who is about to finally destroy all of their enemies. And display his power and his righteous indignation. And this is a song of victory for them. They're celebrating the character and the mighty deeds of God. And they're doing it, it seems, beside or on a sea of glass, the crystal sea. This is the second time we've seen the sea of glass in the book of Revelation. We saw it first in Revelation 4, verse 6. Revelation 4 has the vision of the throne of God. The one seated on the throne, ruling over heaven and earth. And Revelation 4, 6, also before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass as clear as crystal. Here, however, in this vision, this heavenly vision, the sea is mixed with fire, mingled with fire, it says. Now, this crystal sea I've pictured as in direct contrast to the churning, turbulent sea out of which the four beasts come in Daniel chapter 7. And then the one beast comes in Revelation 13. Revelation 13 is a, is a restatement really of the, of the four beasts, the consolidation of the four beasts. The original vision was Daniel 7 in verse 2 and 3. It says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. So there's this churning sea in, Revel- in, in Daniel 7. And four great beasts in Daniel 7 came up out of that churning sea. Now the sea represents the, the nations and all of their judgments from God and all of their, their turmoil and their fighting each other and their wars and rumors of wars and all of that. The wicked are like the, the churning sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and muck, Isaiah 57. And so you get that sense. But then in, in heaven we've got this placid crystal sea. Everything completely at peace, harmonious. God reigns over heavenly peacefulness. It's hard for us even to imagine. We are so filled with anxiety, so filled with turbulence. And so there's that crystal sea up in heaven. Now this this crystal sea has been seen multiple times in the Old Testament. First on Mount Sinai, when Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the elders of Israel went up on Mount Sinai and they saw the throne of God and they saw an expanse like sapphire, clear like the sky between them and God. And he was reigning over that, this crystal expanse. Also in Ezekiel chapter 1, we have that incredible vision of God that's almost just indescribable. Wheels within wheels and and, and eyes on the rims of the wheels and wheels of fire and seraphim and all kinds of stuff going on and then above and above and above. It's just an incredible chapter. 
And you're like, did I, did I get it? And how would you like to be Ezekiel having to try to put that into words? And he did the, 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 the best he could under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But I, I'm, it's a hard thing to picture. But above all of this is this expanse, this, this crystal ceiling or something like that. And above that comes the throne of God. Now, this crystal sea is mingled with fire, which is not mentioned in Revelation 4. And this fire, I think, must represent the peacefulness of God at his heart, but also his vengeance and justice, his judgment that's going to be poured out on the sinners of the earth. Because in Daniel 7, there's a river of fire flowing out of God's throne onto the enemies of God. So you get the, the word fire then picturing the judgment of God. So there's peacefulness in heaven. God's at peace while he judges his enemies. It doesn't ruffle him. It doesn't get him, him uh, destabilized in his soul to do this. He's at peace, but there's judgment coming. And on the sea, I think that's a better translation. The NIV has beside the sea, but I think they're actually on the sea. Are the triumphant saints, and they're walking on the sea, almost like Jesus walking on the water. And they are experiencing the perfect tranquility and peacefulness of God in heaven as they walk there before God. And who is it that we're looking at? The triumphant saints. They're described as conquering heroes in verse 2. I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had won the victory from the beast, his image, and the number of his name, were standing on the sea of glass with harps from God. These are the conquerors. These are the triumphant ones. These are are those that have run the race with endurance and crossed the finish line. Especially in the final phase of human history. When it was the most terrifying and the most dangerous and took the most courage to stand up for Jesus at that time. During the reign of the Antichrist and the beast from the earth, the false prophet. and, And on pain of death, they had to stand up and testify to their allegiance to Jesus. They are those that have conquered. They have overcome. Remember Revelation 2 and 3. The letters to the seven churches. And, and every one of them ends. To him who overcomes. I will give this reward. To him who overcomes. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. To him who overcomes. I will give a new name. To him who overcomes. I will give a place in the temple of my God. Never will he leave it. These, these uh, rewards are, are promised to the conquerors. To the victors. To those who stand firm to the end. I also think of Romans chapter 8, the end of that incredible chapter. And there it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being slaughtered all day long. We're considered as sheep for the slaughter. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So these are, the, these are the super conquerors. These are the ones who stood firm in the hardest test. They triumphed over the beast and his image and the number of his name. Revelation 13, of course, tells us who the beast is, the Antichrist, that one world ruler who's going to come up under the, under the power of the dragon, under the power of the devil, and he will take his, his throne over all the peoples and languages of the earth. And it's not just going to be political power, but religious power. They will all worship him as God. And bow down before him. And he required everyone, small or great, to receive the mark of the beast on the hand or forehead. No one could buy or sell without it. And if you didn't, didn't receive it, they would execute you, probably by beheading, according to Revelation 20. And so they would behead those that would not bow down to 
the idol or bow down to the beast. And these triumphant saints would not bow down. They would not yield. They would not worship this idol. It says of them in Revelation 12, 11, they overcame him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So these are the triumphant conquering heroes. And they sing a worship song. They're standing on the crystal sea, the sea mingled with blood, and they're holding harps from God. They're given them by God. Along with the trumpets, these are the only two musical instruments mentioned in the book of Revelation. And so they're given these instruments to, to, to strum and to sing. And God gives them this gift and wants them to sing. Sing and celebrate the triumph. And they're singing a song of triumph called the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Moses is called the servant of the Lord. Servant because he did the master's bidding. And the song of Moses must bring our minds back to the days of the Exodus. You remember how God used Moses to lead the Jews out of four centuries of bondage in Egypt. And they brought them out with, uh, God brought them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with ten terrible plagues that he poured out on the wicked of Egypt. And brought them out, but then he hardened Pharaoh's heart to chase them with his mighty army. And they pinned the Jewish nation up against the Red Sea. And the people were terrified and they cried out. There seemed to be no escape. But Moses called out to God and God extended over his hand, extended his hand over the Red Sea. And a a mighty east wind came all night and opened for them a way through the sea. And they crossed as on dry ground with the water walling up on the right and on the left. They crossed at night, I think, with the pillar of fire leading them in the way. And maybe two million people crossing. Picture of coming up out of darkness, up out of death into resurrection. Such a picture of our faith in Christ. There's so many images like this in the Old Testament. But when the dawn comes, then Pharaoh, his heart is hardened one more time. And he leads his army into the Red Sea. And the water comes crashing down. And, and the enemies are destroyed. And they, and they all die. As God said they would. These enemies that you see today, you'll never see them again. Well, when that finally happened, those words were fulfilled. On the other side, they sang a song of celebration. The song of Moses. The song of triumph. Exodus 15. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. It's a song of Moses. However, this song is not called that. We already had that song. That was a great deliverance. We've got an even greater deliverance to celebrate at the end of all time, don't we? We have the deliverance worked for us by the Lamb of God, by Jesus And however great that exodus was, however mighty was God's hand over the enemies of the Jews back then, this is even greater. We will be delivered at last from all the enemies of our soul. From the world, the flesh, and the devil. Delivered by the Lamb of God who shed his blood on the cross for sinners like you and me. We deserve to be swept away in the wrath of God. But we're going to reach the other side and we're going to be on that crystal sea. And we're going to celebrate the greatness of the the grace of God. For the praise of his glorious grace. We're going to just celebrate and sing. And don't worry those of you that don't sing well. Like I say of myself, I sing best corporately. 
uh, you know, with lots of brothers and sisters around to, you know, hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all sounds that probably shouldn't be heard in solo. But I don't know, I think maybe at that point we'll all have incredible singing voices. And we're going to celebrate the victory of the Lamb who shed his blood for our souls. The song of Moses and of the Lamb. We already have one of those songs in Revelation chapter 5. At the end of that chapter, there's a song that they sing when, when Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And they sing like cascading songs to Jesus. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. That's a song that they're singing. A few verses later, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So... I don't know what the lyrics are to the song of Moses and of the Lamb other than the few that are given right here in this chapter. I think it's going to be a longer uh, song. But look at verse 3 and 4. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So the great and marvelous deeds of God are celebrated. These are all the deeds of miracles and mighty acts of sovereign grace that he has worked throughout history to save the elect, to redeem them and bring them safely to heaven, but also to judge the servants of Satan, the enemies of the gospel, works of salvation, works of judgment. Great and marvelous are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. We're going to go back over the history. We're all going to be church historians. Don't dread it, though. It's not going to be boring. It's going to be exciting. And we're going to go back over the the great and marvelous deeds of God. And the character of God is celebrated here. Lord God Almighty, He the sovereign ruler of the universe. Just and true are His ways. All of God's judgments are just and true. God's no tyrant acting capriciously. He acts perfectly according to justice. And He is the King of the ages. His reign will last forever and ever. Antichrist, He gets three and a half years. Nebuchadnezzar came to realize he was going to die. His time of being king would come to an end. But God had given him a revelation of a kingdom that would never end. And he celebrated in Daniel 4.34. His dominion is an eternal dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And then they ask, who will not fear you, O God, and bring glory to your name? We use this kind of expression, don't don't we? You know, you could imagine you're in a terrifying situation. Like my family and I, we were in an earthquake in Japan. And someone asked us, well, were you afraid? I'm like, what do you say? No, it was fine. I mean, it was, of all the earthquakes I've been through, that was probably one of the easier ones. That was it. It was the only earthquake I've ever been in. So you'd say, who wouldn't be afraid? When you're seeing the entire house shake under your feet, there's nowhere to go. Who wouldn't be afraid? It's like I couldn't even imagine a person in that situation who wouldn't feel fear. Well, they're saying the same thing. I can't imagine someone who would not fear such a great God. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Who would not fear your name, O God? Who would not bring glory and praise to your name, O majestic King of the ages? It doesn't make any sense. It just it shows the irrationality 
of the world's rebellion. And yet the overwhelming majority of people on earth, even at that time, will not fear his name and will not bring glory to his name. But to them, they can't understand it. And they give reasons because God alone is holy. There is an infinite gap between God and all creatures. Can't even measure infinitely. High and lifted up. That's God. And all nations are going to come and worship before God because God deserves it and has mandated it. Those of you that enter the sanctuary through that door, you walk by a map, and above that map is one of my favorite verses. Senior pastors get to put their favorite verses on missions maps. So Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All nations are going to worship him, bow down before him. Or Psalm 22 27, 28 says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Who will not fear such a God? Who will not bring praise to your name? Because all nations are going to come. And because God's righteous acts have been revealed. Culminating in the work of Christ. So who would be so insane as to not fear you? Who would be so insane as to not come and bow down before you? Now the rest of the chapter just reveals the heavenly source of the wrath of God. The song of the victors gives the theological source of the wrath of God. It flows from God's character and his position in the universe. He is a holy, righteous king. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. That's who he is. And he is the king. It flows theologically from him, his person and his commitment to his people. He is is motivated to vindicate his people and protect them from their enemies. But the rest of the chapter locates positionally where the wrath is coming from. Look at verse 5. After this I looked and in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. ESV doesn't have the word tabernacle, but I think that's that's a better translation. Tabernacle. So John is able with prophetic eyes to look into the heavenly holy of holies. That's incredible. Remember how... In the law of Moses and the old covenant, they set up a tabernacle, a tent. And it was like concentric circles, the holy place and then the most holy place or the holy of holies. And in that inner area, only the high priest could go and only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for his own sins and the sins of the people. And the temple, Solomon's temple, was a physical building that depicted the same realities with the Holy of Holies. But the heavenly temple is the reality. The tent and the building are just shadows, types and shadows. They're gone. You can't find them anywhere. They've been destroyed. But John is able to look into the heavenly reality. He's able to gaze actually into the Holy of Holies with prophetic vision. And it, and it speaks there of the tabernacle of the testimony. This refers to the Ark of the Covenant, the golden box in which the actual Ten Commandments, the actual stone tablets on which the laws of God were inscribed, written with the finger of God. And they were put in the, in the, uh, the Ark of the, of the Testimony. And it's on the basis of God's holy law that these judgments flow. It flows up out of this tabernacle, tabernacle out, out of the law of God that is perfect and holy. His commitment to his holy law, the Ten Commandments, which the human race has violated every day of its existence. 
I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any idols or worship any idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember this Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Do all your work in six days and rest on the seventh. For God made heaven and earth in six days and rested on the seventh. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. These ten commandments... We have violated, and in case we weren't certain how spiritual they are and how they go to our hearts, we should have known from the 10th commandment, because coveting is something you do with your heart, Jesus extends that heart focus to the commandment about murder. Maybe we've never murdered, but have you ever been angry with somebody? Angry enough to kill them, then you're in danger of the fire of hell, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You may not have actually physically committed adultery, but have you ever looked at another person lustfully? You've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus shows that none of us can survive the scrutiny of the Ten Commandments. And then he summarized all of the law in two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbors yourself. These Ten Commandments, these two commandments, we cannot keep. We have not kept. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the judgments we're about to see in Revelation 16 flow from that. God is committed to that law. It's a holy law. And we have violated it. And from this heavenly tabernacle of the testimony, John is able to gaze into the righteous character, the holy character of God and his commitment to his commandments for the human race. And this flows because of transgressions against his holy law. This just flows out of the tabernacle. This wrath will flow. So look at verse 6. Out of the temple... Came the seven angels with the seven plagues. And they're dressed in clean, shining linen. And they wore golden sashes around their chests. These angels are serving God. They're deputized to pour out on planet earth these seven last plagues. They're dressed in clean, shining linen. Symbolizing their perfect holiness and purity. And it is to purify the earth that, this, that these plagues are going to be poured out in Revelation 16. They have golden sashes around their chest, just like Jesus did in Revelation 1, moving among the seven golden lampstands. Here they are dressed purely and with valuable attire. And they're emerging from the tabernacle of the testimony to bring the curses of the law of God on the violators of his word. In verse 7, the living creatures give them the bowls. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels... The seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. This goes back again to Revelation 4. The four living creatures are before the throne of God. Described in verse 7 and 8 of Revelation 4. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of a man. And the fourth like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These are the living creatures. Now, back then, as I was trying to interpret the symbolism and the, and the language of all of these features of the book of Revelation, very hard to do. But these four living creatures, to me, they're actual creatures that are up in heaven, but they're described here. And they represent physical creation, which has been groaning, groaning as in the pains of childbirth, groaning under bondage to decay because of human sin, waiting to be liberated from the bondage to decay by the redemption of the 
children of God in resurrection, waiting for the new heaven and the new earth. And they're groaning. And so it makes sense for these living creatures to hand over the bowls of judgment to the angels. And these bowls, to me, I don't know, they, they, they represent, because of bowls, like picture a, a saucer like that, like bowls of liquid wrath. It's terrifying. Just poured out on planet earth. I think about some, it says plague. I think about the most terrible plague there's ever been, smallpox. People don't realize what a terrible plague that was in human history. Do you realize that 300 million people died of smallpox in the 20th century? 300 million. It's estimated that over half a billion people have died from it in in history. Because of vaccination, Edward Jenner came up in the 19th century. Vaccination, little by little, became conquered, defeated to some degree. Till now, the only place you can find the virus is in two research laboratories, one in Russia and one in Atlanta, Georgia. How would you like to live in Atlanta, Georgia? And here's this live virus of smallpox in the WHO laboratory there in Atlanta. Imagine if you were transporting it, like you had a box with it. I mean, what would that be like? It'd be terrifying. I wouldn't want that job. Liquid death terrifying that's nothing compared to this it's hard for me to even describe what we're about to see next week i mean the human race cannot long endure after revelation 16 after the seven bowls are poured out it's not a third a third a third a third anymore it's the entire ocean it's terrifying and we're going to see it next week and so these four living creatures give to the seven angels the liquid death liquid wrath in these bowls and the smoke of God, verse 8, fills the temple. And temple was, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now we've seen this before. When the tabernacle was done, in Exodus 40, a cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So even his choicest servant could not enter in at that point. God alone was there. And you see the same thing with the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their services because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. To me, this speaks of the unapproachability of God. God is unapproachable. He dwells in 1 Timothy 6, an unapproachable light. But also in some sense here in a dark cloud, unapproachable darkness. God is on his own doing this. Does that make sense? I mean, he's using the angels. He's using the four living creatures. But this is something that he alone has the right to do. And so the cloud makes God unapproachable in his time of wrath. While his wrath is being poured out on the earth, no one can approach him and no one can stop him. It says in Isaiah 43, 13, no one can deliver out of my hand when I act who can reverse it. Now you remember how Moses interceded for Israel in Exodus 32. Turn from your fierce anger, O Lord, relent. But God at that time will hear no intercession. The time of his wrath will have come and the end will have come. And it says in Isaiah 14, 27, the Lord Almighty has purposed and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out 
and who shall be able to turn it back? All right, what applications can we take from this? First, always, we give top priority to the gospel call. It is vital for we who are sinners to realize the danger that we're in were it not for the redemption of Christ. We need to understand what Jesus is a savior from. The terror of the wrath of God. We need to flee to Christ now while there's time. This is the day of salvation. Jesus is presenting in his first coming, his first advent, he is presenting himself as meek and mild and lowly and humble. He's gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The picture of the virgin with child and the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. That is a picture of the mildness and meekness of Jesus. This is the time to come to Christ. This is the time to confess that you have violated God's Ten Commandments. You're not under any deception about this. You know you have broken His commandments. You have not loved God with all of your heart. You've not loved your neighbor as yourself. Flee to Christ. And for we who are Christians, it is, this is our time, not just this December time, this Christmas time, but this day of salvation, this, this avenue of grace is opened and we are messengers. And everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that marvelous? Anyone, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call in the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in someone they've never heard about? And how can they hear without someone preaching? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's our job. We get to bring the good news to lost people, even this week. And obviously that brings me to Lottie Moon. I mean, this is the time in which our church is collecting money. I would urge you to be prayerful about what kind of sacrificial giving you should do to keep missionaries on the field. I have the privilege of actually... I have the, the formal privilege of presenting the names of every missionary who will be appointed by the IMB this year, I get to do this, to the trustees to vote them in. The trustees actually appoint missionaries. That's what we do. And my privilege is to say their names. It's a rubber stamp, I know, but it's a glorious rubber stamp. I love doing it. And I love to say their names and say that my subcommittee recommends them to be appointed as missionaries. But I'm telling you, it takes a lot of money to keep them on the field. Keep them on the field. It's expensive to do missions. They're setting up in big cities with big city costs. And they're reaching hundreds of thousands of people who have never heard the name of Christ. So be sacrificial and give. Finally, I just want you to look forward to the celebration that we're going to do. When we're finally walking beside that or on that sea of glass. And we're going to celebrate the song of Moses and even better of the Lamb. We're going to give him the victory and the praise. Do that now. I mean, I love doing corporate worship with you folks. Let's, let's worship by the Spirit continually the praise and the redemption that Jesus has worked for us. Close with me now in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had to study your word. We thank you for the things that we've learned. Lord, we know this is an incredible introduction to a, an outpouring of wrath we can scarcely imagine. Help us to understand it. Help us to be ready to take it in. But knowing that it's coming, O oh Lord, help us to live holy and upright lives in this present corrupt age and to warn people who have yet to come to Christ to flee to him while there's still time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification 
and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.